Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. If you're done settling, I have a surprise for you. Okay. Look at this. <gasps> oh, my God. Give it. Oh, my God. Did you get this today? Yeah, it's like a perverse Valentine's gift, right? It came in the mail. Oh, my God. Want to tell people what it is? It's it's a copy of our new book. It's a copy uh, of our new Heart. book. The, the, the publisher, our editor sent this, I'm guessing. Our editor sent this, yes. Just in time you, for Valentine's Day. You know, it's like people just won't understand. Like you work for like 18 months on a book. Even though you see the galleys and everything, this, this literally is the moment that I wait for. Is to, it's like holding your child. Oh, the packaging is so great. It's like holding your child if your child was a story of <laughs> sex, manipulation, and murder, is what you mean. Yeah. No, I used to, I like reading the front matter. I just like, oh, they, the font is so good. Oh, my God. All I right. can't believe it's here. You clearly are beside yourself, so let me just get this out. You can just keep gushing. Okay. Thumb through your little book baby over there. Oh, my God. As you might have figured out, Kevin and I do have a book coming out. You can pre-order it now. Kevin's holding it in his hands right now, and clearly he's in love. The book is called Dark Heart, A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and Murder. You can reserve your copy through the book section at crimewriterson.com. It will be in stores everywhere March 1st. And if you want to meet us, we're having a bit of a book launch and signing. We will be at Gibson's Bookstore in Concord, New Hampshire on March 3rd at 5.30 p.m. And you know what? Toby and Laura might be there, too. We will see. So if you're interested in meeting up with us, maybe grabbing a beer with the crime writers after the book signing, check out our website, crimewriterson.com. We will post event information on our homepage. And Kevin, do you want to just read the title of that book again? Yeah. Thank you for sharing this with me in this moment. It's Dark Heart, A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and murder. And it's nothing like a baby at all. It's not, well, no, not really. I mean, it did take as long to, to gestate as Longer. an elephant does <laughs> or a sperm whale, but uh, yeah. So, right, you can help us by buying these books or making a donation, but you can also buy stuff using the Amazon.com link at our website. And just a tiny piece of that purchase goes to the podcast, doesn't cost you anything else. And you know, sometimes we've been known to have Toby read some items on the air about what you have been buying. So I think now's a good time to go roll that. People hate it, but let's do it anyway. People actually love it. They either love it they or love they hate it. They love it or they hate it. All right, let's roll it. Reusable shopping bag. Foldable strawberry canvas tote eco grab bag with handles for grocery shopping gift bags. Ten pieces wholesale by Home Flave. Newer, six feet, 183 centimeter, portable indoor outdoor photo studio pop-up changing dressing fitting tent room with carrying case. Baby Gannix foaming dish and bottle soap refill. Thai deodorant stone high crystal mist pump. Earth rated 300 count lavender scented dog waste bags on a single roll for pantries and outdoor waste stations, not on small rolls. Manual for massage therapy educators, 
with a special section for massage school owners and administrators. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about a grab bag of topics, including your questions, the final days of Adnan Syed's PCR hearing, that O.J. Simpson series everybody's watching, plus an interview with a special surprise guest you might recognize if you watched Netflix's Making a Murderer. Joining me to do all of this is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca from New Hampshire, where we're making America burn again. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, that's what we're doing. And on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, and mother of burn-feeling child, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yeah, my kid is feeling the burn this week. He's sleeping in his Bernie shirt. (laughs) And also joining us is noir novelist and everybody's favorite naysayer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello. Well, before we get into the content this week, I just want to clear up a little mystery that apparently we threw out there last week that has been solved. In our list of Amazon items that Toby read last week, one of them was this, and I quote, canine semen collection kits for Al. Now, for Al? (laughs) Now, I suspected when I heard Toby had said Al that it was actually... AI, and I sent Toby a note, and he's like, yeah. AI what? AI, like artificial insemination. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I have a story about that. No, and, I don't want to hear your story about <laughs> artificial insemination with dogs. And, no, and, but it was horses, and I got out of the class. I actually opted out of the artificial insemination class. <laughs> They had to get up at 6 a.m. That was the reason you didn't do it because it was too early in the morning? That in it really. You would have artificially inseminated horses if it was on your lunch hour. (laughs) Oh my God. Have you seen Pope of Greenwich Village? Oh God, not for like a gajillion years. You're going way back there, Toby. There's a little bit about horse artificial insemination. For those who don't know, I'm going to add another little thing to my repertoire. I actually majored in equine science at college. Wow. So this was actually a required course that I was supposed to take, and I decided I was doing journalism, and I said, can I swap a journalism class for that artificial insemination class? I just got a text message from Ken Kratz saying, if there are any children (laughs) listening, they should move away from the computer. Any children under 15. 15. So, Toby, I wrote to you, and I said, you know, I think... Maybe you misread this, but I'm just leaving it in because that's hilarious. I think it was supposed to be AI. What was your response to me, Toby? I looked at it and I saw AI and I thought artificial intelligence, (laughs) but it just didn't make any sense in context. Let's artificially inseminate robots. Okay. All right. Yeah, exactly. So I just said Al. This is the weirdest (laughs) podcast ever. It is, but. This is like Tannis-like. But we have a conclusion and an answer to this mystery. Unlike Tannis. Today I got an email, and I'm going to read it to you now, from Rachel. Hey, team. First, I really enjoy the podcast. Thank you for helping to fulfill my Adnan curiosity and for sharing new perspectives on the Bergdahl case. And then she says a bunch of other nice things. Then she says, I want to point out that because of the font Amazon uses, the capital I often appears as a lowercase l, as in 
canine semen collection kits for Al, uh. when it actually is canine semen collection kits for AI, artificial insemination. I'm the one who bought the product through the link. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping you would say it, so thank you. I believe it might not have oh, been no. the weirdest item you read on that episode. Poultry toothpaste? Surely it must be poultry-flavored toothpaste. That anyway, <laughs> thanks for your contribution to the true crime dialogue. So I wrote back, I she, said... She didn't just buy this to make Toby read it, right? No. I wrote back, I said, you know, as for Toby's misread, I did catch it but left the item in anyway because I love it when Toby, who, by the way, is an incredibly talented writer, reads things wrong, which he does almost every time. And then I said, please tell me you breed dogs. <laughs> and she does. This oh, is a dog breeder. This is a woman who breeds bulldogs and French bulldogs. She sent me pictures of her dogs. She linked me to her website. And it's not that she bought the dog semen collection kit so just so that Toby could read it. It's that she knew it was weird. And she thought, I'm going to start buying it with the Crime Writers on link just to throw them a little piece of my business. So that mystery is solved. Everyone feel good about that? Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Tell me she doesn't have a dog named Miggs. No, she does not. No, she does not. And that is disgusting and clever at the same time. Everyone knows that reference, right? <laughs> No. That's a Silence of the Lambs reference. That... It's okay. Oh, yes. Look it up on the internet. Don't look it up on the internet. Put the biscuit in the basket. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move on. I just think artificial insemination of dogs is just... It's the only way you can breed those dogs. Bulldogs really? would not exist were it not for artificial insemination. Oh. We're bang for the buck, Kevin. They are literally... <laughs> no, there's less bang, I believe. Oh, God, stop. I'm cutting all of this. All of it. No. Get it out. Keep it in. Get it out. All right, you ready? I'm good. All right. Last time we were all together, we talked about Adnan Syed's post-conviction relief hearing that we were paying attention to, some of us on social media, and that continued then into this past week, even though it was supposed to be three days. It got extended through Monday and Tuesday of this week. That hearing finally finished up, even though we know there won't be a decision from the bench now for a couple of months Toby, after all of this, like, kerfluffle where suddenly there was stuff going on with this case we hadn't talked about in a long time, now we're not going to hear anything for a couple of months. Does it feel, like, a little bit anticlimactic, or is it just okay with you? I guess it's okay. Unlike, you know, other people who are more involved in it, I don't think I'm going to, like, be, like, pining for that day. But it seems I, I, you know, I haven't read any commentary about it. I've got a buddy who's a lawyer in Baltimore who's been sending me uh, these daily updates from the the daily business and law newspaper in Baltimore. And just from reading that, I mean, it sounds like Adnan's lawyers made a pretty good case. So my, my assumption is that, you know, he'll be granted a new trial. Well, I don't know if that's a fair assumption to make. I think we know Laura, and you can probably speak to this. Sometimes things can seem like they go really well in court, but it really it's up to the discretion of one person, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of times where I've been in cases and I think, oh, this is definitely going our way and the judge will rule completely opposite. You know, I think this could go either way. And I, I feel like it is a little anticlimactic because I was interested for a few days and then I was like, eh, all right. I mean, and I feel bad saying that, but I'm like, well, whatever happens, happens at this point. And, you know, it's had a pretty good run. You have to say that. It has had a good run. The other thing that happened was it sounds like the closing argument day, there were like a tremendous amount of sparks. Kevin, can you fill us in on the things that you saw coming out of the final day of the hearing? We heard about all that stuff happening around the closing arguments. Yeah, well, I mean, just your original question about, it being anticlimactic, it obviously is, because, again, nothing's going to happen. And that's kind of how we thought about, like, you know, see, how season one of Serial was going to end, unless something dramatic happens. And the wheels of justice just don't turn that fast. So so the final day when they wrapped up, and again, this is kind of going by 
what you know saw on Twitter and listening to the updates from the undisclosed team and reading actual news reports, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the Baltimore Sun <laughs> obviously did a good job. From what I the saw Guardian. on Twitter, it seemed crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and some some of the local TV stations, but not from Sarah Koenig because she. She had to go back she to moved work. On, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she, you know, she thought it was going to be three days. None of us really thought it would go on this long. It seems like you know from what we're hearing is that the state, who is the respondent in this motion, only called two witnesses. It was very brief. One of them was. With Steve, what would they call him? Oh, useless uh, Steve. Useless Steve. Useless yes. Steve. Whose last name now the judge has has asked not to be used. Didn't he become useful Steve at the end? Well, apparently he actually, you know, made more points for the defense than he did for the state. Uh, I, I did like the description the librarian gave him that the students used to refer to him as 2.5 instead yes. of 5.0 because yeah. he was like half a cop. And their terrible FBI expert witness was very combative and didn't like come off very well. So, but uh, again, uh, Justin Brown, who was a, a non's attorney. You know, uh, by all accounts, gave a, a really good uh, summary, and it seemed to be mostly like the prosecutor, instead of presenting evidence or presenting testimony from other people, was testifying himself by throwing stuff out there and basically submitting his, not submitting, but basically, you know, argue, making these arguments and, and testifying, you know, himself. That it could have been strategy. Sure. Here's one of my theories. The other thing interesting that happened was that the original cell phone witness for the prosecution ended up submitting an affidavit to the court, basically recanting his testimony based on the facts cover right. sheet. Yeah, right? and this thing, his name was Abrams, and they actually got him on Abe, undisclosed. Abe Waronowitz. And he he was going to testify, but it was going on so long, the judge basically, the judge said, just I'll have a written affidavit, meaning, okay, it's fine. I don't need to hear from him. Just put it in paper and, and notarize it. And, you know, he said to Rabia and to, and to Susan, you know that he he just he couldn't stand by his original testimony, and he didn't. He admitted he didn't have a dog in the fight. He didn't really carry the way. He's an engineer, and for the sake of science, and uh, Susan pointed out, well, the FBI experts said all of your stuff you did was great, except you didn't do a driving test. And he said, yeah, I did a driving test with Uric and Jay in the car. Right. And it's in there. So it was really enlightening. Laura's right. You just never know. Laura, I have a question for you. Is that now I guess that the affidavit that was submitted by the original cell phone expert was submitted because of time. You know, there was just not the time that a judge had to end the proceeding at some point. Is an affidavit, in your experience, less effective than a witness who can tell their story in person? Or does it not matter? Does the written document serve the same purpose? Well, I think it sort of depends on what you're hoping to get from this particular um, evidence. You know, a lot of times in cases where I had cell phone records, we were not going to have the actual cell phone company person come. So you would submit kind of like a certification of the records, which was a sworn statement saying these are official records from the cell phone company. But if you need somebody to interpret the records or if you really are counting on how somebody's going to come across as a witness, whether they're going to come across as a credible witness and how the jury, in this case it's a judge, so it's a little bit different, um, how that person's going to be perceived, I think it really depends on sort of the intent of this evidence, the specific evidence that you're trying to get in. Now, without the benefit of cameras or microphones in the courtroom, you know, I talked last week about the journalists that I was following on the, on Twitter. The world is now getting its real-time news from, you know, journalists on Twitter, but also from 
the internet from maybe less reputable sources than, say, the Baltimore Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, also from podcasts, by the way, like ours, you know, <laughs> true confessions. Sorry, world. It's not like you need to be a trained journalist to have, say, tens of thousands of people listening to your interpretation of what happened in the courtroom. Toby, my question for you is this. Is Pandora's box open, and are we part of Pandora's box being open <laughs> at this point? I mean, we, we did hear Justin Brown say this was the first open-sourced case, and we're kind of part of that open-sourcing in like a weird way. How do you feel about that? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, and I think the thing that's different is that people have to be a little more uh, judicious in what they what they read and sort of uh, interrogate the lens through which the people who are producing, you know, whether it's something that's written or it's in a podcast or whatever, be aware of the point of view of the the person who's producing it. And as far as like our, I kind of feel in, you know, I'm sure people are going to be like, oh yeah, you're, you're just dodging. But I, I kind of feel like we're one step removed from it. At least the way like I kind of think about what we do is more sort of commenting on the way the media covers things, the way popular culture covers things more than what's actually so-and-so said something in the courtroom. We're not reporting is what you're saying. We're doing analysis. Yeah. I think our podcast is about talking about the media around these things. I totally agree with you. Laura, do you think that there's, I mean, this is not a new conversation. I think that the, you know, the new media, the Twitter, the real time thing, you know, has been around for a while, but what does seem new is, you know, People quitting their jobs to now have a podcast where they're investigating cases. Now, we're seeing like this in more than one instance. Do you think that there should be a hazard sign here or do you think, you know, just let it happen and then it will all sort of everything will fall where they may? What's your what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with self-publishing and the big self-publishing boom. And everybody was publishing a book. And you, you can certainly, I think, tell the quality from those that are not as good. And I think that, you know, you have to sort of go into this realizing that you're hearing things with a little bit of a grain of salt, you know, in terms of pretty much anybody can put this information out there. Good for them for quitting their jobs, but (laughs) good luck. Um, As we know, it's not as easy as it sounds to um, earn money off a podcast. So good luck to them, I guess. (laughs) I guess we've learned that. (laughs) You know, I, I was looking at Twitter today a little bit, and I think one of the issues around this is that I think there does get to be kind of a uh, mob mentality about things. Like somebody – there was a little bit of a conversation about will Jay come clean? Will he stop being such a liar? Will we forgive him if he comes clean? You know, So people were kind of jumping in on it and that's the kind of thing that I think is – gives me a little bit of a pause. You know, there, there's no check on it, you know, and especially since people can can say things anonymously and they can take action. You know, when Jay was having people showing up on his lawn. Mm, yeah, not good. You know, based on a podcast. I mean, I think that's the issue. Like the, the whole citizen detective thing, I, I guess there's a point at which it becomes, I would assume, problematic. And, and part of that is like showing up at somebody's store. Yeah, or pointing also, to two guys at the Boston Marathon with backpacks 
and putting them on the front page of the New York Post yeah. saying these are the bombers when they weren't. But at least that's got accountability to a certain extent. Well, yeah, the Post does, but everybody yeah. on Reddit who crowdsourced that, right. you know, nobody's held accountable for that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's actually a long tradition of citizen detectives. I mean, we're doing a story right now in my newsroom about there are four bodies that were found in... Um, Allentown, Bearbrook Park. Bearbrook Park in Allentown, New Hampshire. And then there's new science that people are sort of reopening this case and looking at this case. And this case was tangential to one of the books that Kevin and I wrote. It's something that we've thought about for a long time. And there's actually a woman in Maine who's basically made it her life's work to find out the identities of these four victims. And then we heard that episode of Criminal where there was that woman who made it her life's work to find the, the identity of that Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. who was. I mean, there are people out there doing earnest work you know, to try to do the right thing. And I guess there is a difference between really putting in the time and the work and trying to do research and solve a case and do your due diligence versus the crowdsourced theory and then finding evidence to fit that theory. Is, is, does that sound right to you, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I think there's value in a crowd trying to guess how many jelly beans in the jar. You know, you run into some problems where if it's just beyond, did you recognize the guy in the surveillance video? I mean, you, you've got a lot of different ideas and it can become like a lynch mob if you go in the wrong direction. During the original run of Serial, I mean, people were very suspicious of Jay and maybe thought he was the killer. You know, if you freeze that moment in time and and, and jump forward now where we've seen all sorts of new evidence come out that we're more likely to believe that Jay was manipulated into giving uh, false testimony rather than being a trigger man or something like that. You know, it's, it's not cool that people were being vigilantes and harassing him. Well, speaking of irresponsible speculation, uh, last week we did throw something out there as a result of an email that we got from our listener, Jennifer, questioning whether or not Bo Bergdahl might be on the autism spectrum. We talked a little bit about Asperger's. While it's no Nisha call, that idea has really kind of blown up. We've gotten, I don't know, dozens, I would say, of emails this week of from people commenting on the fact that we talked about that. Most of them saying, by the way, that they agreed. Um, a physician from Qatar, or Qatar, as I used to pronounce it before I learned it was pronounced Qatar, uh, wrote that he thinks it sounds like Bo has a high IQ, so is highly functioning on the spectrum. He says, for example, if Sarah Koenig's story about the shaving comment being a joke, that if Bo was autism spectrum disorder, he wouldn't have been able to understand the subtlety of this. Bo's rigid thinking, lack of social skills, might also have given some explanation for why he walked off his post in the first place. If he has very precise ideas about how things should have been done and these things are not being met, he would not have been able to reconcile and cope with his frustration. So basically, this physician and lots of other people absolutely also jumping on the bandwagon that Jennifer sort of put us on with her email that, Laura, you and I confessed we were too afraid to say out loud. Yes. Do you feel better knowing that you're not alone in this, Laura? No, I do. And I've thought about it more. And I I really think this is where we're going with this. You know, I I actually did some searching on the Internet to see if anybody else had come up with this. And I didn't really come up with anything. Um, There was something about Bo having undergone sort of a psychiatric evaluation as part of all of the proceedings that are going on. And that his defense says he has a mental defect or disorder that's going to come into play in this case. So I think we're on the right path. Definitely. Well, guess what? There's another theory that's been thrown into the mix by another emailer and a really, really smart email. This is an emailer named Josh 
who says, while I was listening to the last show and the hypothesis about Bo having Asperger's, I found myself wondering if he had been homeschooled. He okay. had been. This gets interesting. Okay. Josh says, I was homeschooled from first through 12th grade. I spent a lot of time around other kids that were homeschooled. I worked with many college students that were homeschooled. It was the perfect environment for me, and there were a lot of benefits. But I can easily imagine a young man being homeschooled and demonstrating the same traits that Bo is described as having. Homeschooled kids tend to see the world in black and white. Their worldview is shaped through limited socialization and tons of reading. They don't tend to conform to social pressure or social norms because those pressures are relatively uncommon in their world. They can be idealistic. They don't tend to get the jokes because they've been significantly under-socialized. He goes on and on and on. Um, the final thing he says is, in fact, most homeschool families pride themselves on not conforming to social norms. Homeschooled kids tend to be independent thinkers, eagerly challenge the status quo. The way that Bo is described in Serial sounds like a classic Homeschooler. Don't the Bergdahls live like somewhat off the grid? They Isn't do. That, yeah. What do you think of this email, Kevin? First of all, I'm glad he made the point that not all homeschoolers are, you know, wacky or whatever. It, you know that that it works good for some families and not for others, and that if he were both on the autism spectrum and being homeschooled, again, that would you know sort of be this whole mix where we get to the the perfect storm of him having a developmental disability in a a social less environment. I don't know what you'd call that. You know, a, a less socialized, less socialized, uh, more isolated environment, and then getting into the bigger world of the army with its rules and its regulations that he seems to like and conform to. He likes the rigidity of that, but it's it's again, it's the commanders who don't follow the rules and and you know the other stuff that you know really gets him all wound up. I think it's really kind of an interesting. One, I guess it's probably just another factor into what his makeup is, which is, I think, why Sirius is becoming much more interesting now. Now, Toby, you threw out a couple of episodes ago that you used to be a teacher, right? Yes. Okay, so I'm curious to know what you think about this theory. I'm not asking you to speculate as to whether or not homeschooled kids are you know, vastly different than other kids, but does anything about this sound familiar or ring true to you? I'm just curious as to know your thoughts. Well, I think it's interesting that, that you can sort of give a description of somebody and have that person either be considered on the autism spectrum or homeschooled, that to me is strange. Yeah. Um, I only taught for a year and I don't think that there was anybody who really, at least in my classes, sort of had those issues, you know, or if they did, they were super quiet and it was hard to tell between that and just the fact that they, they weren't very uh, outgoing. You know, I, I think a more apt experience that I had was actually, so we talked about this, what, on Thursday last week? And then on Saturday, I went to a basketball game and uh, I was sitting with my buddy and behind us, there was four guys who I think were probably in college, but they'd all gone to the same high school and played basketball together. And then a fifth guy who wasn't with them showed up and sat down next to them. It was pretty clear that he had some real issues like having normal socializing. He spoke strangely. And then he proceeded to talk at great length about the different numbers they had worn in junior varsity and varsity basketball and how when people like moved up from JV, like, you know, you were number 11, but then you had to change to 15 because so-and-so wanted 15 because 22 wasn't available. So he's going through this this very long convoluted thing, like over years of the different numbers these guys 
had worn. And as I was listening to this, I was thinking of, all right, so you put him in Afghanistan with a bunch of other guys like hanging around smoking cigarettes or whatever. Or a pipe. Yeah. Or, well, he, he'd have a pipe. It's, it's kind of interesting just following so closely on the heels of that discussion. It definitely, I thought, gave me some perception into how that might have worked. So I grew up in Vermont, and there's different levels of homeschooling. But when I grew up in Vermont, there were a lot of families, like, you know, the hippie families that moved to Vermont in, like, the 70s that homeschooled their kids. And for the most part, the kids would be homeschooled and then end up in the public school system, like, maybe when they came to high school. And I was just thinking about this as you guys were talking and kind of that personality type. And there was one family, you know, they had a lot of siblings. When they came to high school, they're all very confident in who they are. They're the type of kids that would definitely like stand up to bullies and not have self-esteem issues. So it definitely, I think in some situations does create that sort of, you know, not what you would expect in a typical teenager, I think, because they're, they're so much more mature and I don't want to say worldly, but you know, by the time they came into high school, these kids were definitely a step above kind of where the rest of us were at, if well, that makes sense. It does make sense. But one thing I want to throw out there for the pro spectrum argument again, because the doctor from Cutter also said this. So this is like flipping back around that if Bo was on the autism spectrum, that would have been a tremendous advantage during his captivity because the isolation, you know, talking about how well he survived the isolation, a huge part of that of not surviving well in isolation is about socialization and not having those daily social cues and those daily social interactions. And that is not necessarily something that somebody on the spectrum experiences in the same way. So that perhaps if he is on the spectrum, it helped him survive those five years in captivity. How do you react to that, Kevin? If my understanding of uh, what it's like to live with autism is is you know true and accurate, and not just what I see in movies, you know, I think his ability to catalog everything that was going on when he was being debriefed and he remembered all these other things. I mean, you could definitely, you know, kind of see him processing that versus, you know, he said he didn't want to, like, you know, look at the clock on the wall anymore. And, like, th- that stuff's all very rough. Part of the clue, though, uh, about why he survived, I, mean, I think they said they knew he wasn't psychotic or he wasn't crazy because he he got through it. If he had gone crazy, his interaction with the others would have precipitated, you know, some sort of violent act. You know, I think there has to be some kind of social sophistication, I think, to survive that long in captivity. But, you know, I'm probably going to have to, like, defer to the doctor here that maybe it did work for him, that he didn't have to worry you know, he was able to focus on the things that he was and he wasn't going to make the mistakes and the other that the rest of us might make. Of course, this is all, you know, specu- all speculation. We, 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 yeah. we don't know. We and know we, he was homeschooled. We don't know he was he's right. on the And we spectrum. also don't know that either one of those things had anything to do with what led to either his captivity or with what led to how he dealt with his captivity. But the one question this really raises and Toby, I'll bring this to you first, is that. Does this conversation make you think? I mean, there was a time when if a young man needed discipline, the cure was to send him to military school or to the army. Kevin, you've made jokes about sending, you know, one of one of my sons to military school, you know. <laughs> and it's like that was the prescription for people who hadn't quite found their way and you wonder how many young men 
over the years were sent into the military who actually had disabilities or who actually in today's world would have been looked at very differently. Toby, have you been thinking about this at all? No. (laughs) (laughs) Next question, please. (laughs) No, I, you know, I, I think throughout the past, we've treated people with disabilities, both physical and uh, psychological, in terrible ways. And in that case would be more in ways that are just sort of inappropriate to nourishing them. You know, when you talk, like, uh, again, you, you look at a, a kid, and if they misbehave, you know, the joke is, or sometimes it's not a joke, is that we're going to send you either to reform school, military school, or Catholic school, okay? And what does that say? Reform school, they're basically saying jail. Mm-hmm. Military school, they're saying the army, and I'll get to Catholic school in a second. When they're adults, this is what ends up happening to a lot of people who are, I don't want to say not typical, but let's let's put them, you know, sort of distinguish them as, as, as being eh, troubled or just not on the mainstream or whatever. So many people wind up incarcerated mm-hmm. because they're not fitting in with what else is going on. A lot of other people go into the military because they feel like they need the discipline or they need the career. That's a place where they'll go. And I'm going to say, as the Catholic, I'm going to say there's a whole systemic generation after generation of young men who knew that they had a certain sexual attraction and they went into the priesthood, not because they wanted to get closer to children, because they thought this is what's going to save me. If I pray to God, God will help me, and I will not act on these things. And we just know that's that's not true. But the point is, there is a place on the fringes of society where we have always shoved people who don't fit in. There's, there's also the insane asylums, which were warehouses. We push people aside that don't fit in with the machine of our society. And Bo Bergdahl is one of those kinds of guys who apparently just is going to wind up someplace else. But he went. He didn't. wasn't pushed anywhere. No, he wasn't well, pushed anywhere. But he, and he shouldn't have been there in the first place. I'm going to go back to, I mean, he got in on a waiver. There was all these people that got in on a waiver because they needed more people for Afghanistan. He'd already been kicked out of the Coast Guard for mental health reasons. So regardless of what his diagnosis is, I don't think he should have been let in. I mean, it makes me wonder who else they let in during this waiver period and what happened with those people. I can tell you, I'm looking so forward to episode seven of Serial for a completely different way than any other episode before. Why is that? Be- because of this whole idea. Now, maybe we're, maybe we're just self-churning it, but just the reaction that we've gotten on our Twitter feeds and, and the email of people all over the world. I'm just I'm surprised at the amount of international communication we've got. And hey, we love you in Australia too. And you can uh, come stay at our vacation house in yeah, England. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> but this, you know, seemed to just kind of like a bell went off when people went like, oh, you know, I can think we have a very smart audience. Obviously, they're they're critical thinkers, which is why they're they're listening to a podcast about a podcast. I think this something resonated with them. Like this might be the clue to what this whole season is about, and that's very intriguing. So I am intrigued in a way that I haven't been before, and I'm really looking forward to next week. But here's my question: Our podcast audience is smart. They're critical thinkers. The world at large, if it turns out that the revelation is. Bo Bergdahl is on the spectrum. Will that change minds? Is that going to change people's minds? Right. Look, if if the description of five years of captivity where he was tortured doesn't turn people's hearts, then it's not going to change their hearts. Mm -hmm. It may change some perceptions, 
but I think at this point it's a love him or hate him, and that that's that's been the issue with with the the character of Bo Bergdahl. transition now to another topic altogether. As you know, we spent many weeks discussing Making a Murderer, that Netflix series that had all of America abuzz. And as it turns out, one of the people that we felt we came to know on Making a Murderer lives right here. I mean, like right here in Concord, New Hampshire. Kevin reached out to him and earlier today we had him into the studio for a conversation about his experience around the Stephen Avery case. Now, if you haven't seen Making a Murderer, we don't really spoil anything in this conversation, but if you'd rather just avoid it, you can feel free to skip ahead. But without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and let our special guest introduce himself. One clue on this show, we gave him the code name Silver Fox. My name is Aaron Keller. I grew up in upstate New York and from a very young age wanted to be a journalist. And I had no clue that in 2004 that would take me to Wisconsin, which would then lead me in 2005 to receive a fax in a newsroom about a woman who was missing under very suspicious circumstances, which in the year 2015 and 2016 led to an international craze called Making a Murderer. And you, of course, were part of the pool of journalists that we as viewers saw in the documentary. And I really think that the journalists, um, Kevin, you can chime in and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, were sort of like the Greek chorus for the audience in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that your role in the documentary was to kind of poke the prosecution, ask them the questions that we were sitting on our couch wondering about. Is that how you felt during the time or was it just edited to make you look that way? Good question. I think that my impression covering the case is probably not the impression that most people who've watched the film would take away from the role of the press. I think that you're largely accurate in the sense that the role of the press is to ask critical questions of people in positions of authority. And at least at my television station, that's exactly what we aimed to do. So one question I have also been asked that would couple with this is whether or not the press was somehow unfair to Stephen Avery or whether we did not properly explore the appropriate questions back at the time of the trial. And I think that that criticism is unfounded because we were asking questions about the ethics of the law enforcement investigation. We were asking questions about the ethics of the prosecutor's conduct. And those stories were all on the air in the years 2005, 2006, and early 2007 in Wisconsin. So in the news at that time, was was the narrative already that the defense was going to be saying the police planted evidence, or did that just sort of come out of trial and that became the story then? That started from, I don't want to say day one, but perhaps day two, day three of the search on the Avery property. He was, in the words of Dean Strang, his attorney, in a very simple way, suggesting that there was a law enforcement setup or some malfeasance on behalf of the sheriff's department. So that was on our air on our television station before Stephen Avery was even arrested. I always thought that being in the media pool for a, a trial like this was actually more advantageous uh, than not because you know nine through five or nine through six, where you're going to be, whereas a general assignment reporter, Monday, you're running to a fire and Tuesday, you're covering this. You, there was some uh, stability, which you don't usually get in broadcast journalism. 
There was and there wasn't. And it depended on the logistics of covering this particular case. And one thing I've encouraged people who have watched the film to do is actually pull out a map of Wisconsin and start putting push pins <laughs> electronically now. Of course, no one carries a paper map anymore. But think about the logistics of covering this story. We're in a medium television market, and we don't have 50 live trucks and 25 photographers What's on the clock. What's a typical story like that would, lead, that would lead the news there? What is a typical story like not What's during the Avery trial? Like- the Green Bay Packers. Okay. Um, <laughs> then the Green Bay Packers would be in the B block, and then the Packers would be in sports. And then, I mean, it sounds there, like New England. Uh, well, the Packers Fishing are conditions? not news in New England. <laughs> and so it, it was a rather crime-heavy market, but part of the reason why is because Green Bay, for its size, is drastically saturated as a media market, or at least it was at the time, compared with other cities its size. We had already seen in other similarly sized cities a decay of broadcast journalism where one station would start to enter into the precursor of a local marketing agreement with another station or whatnot. And the contraction of broadcast journalism, at least on television, was already happening in many other cities, but it was not happening in Green Bay. And so what the environment looked like is everyone recognizes the name of the city Green Bay, but there are other cities that are almost as big as Green Bay in the surrounding area. There's Appleton, there's Manitowoc, Oshkosh. There were a series of rather large cities that were stacked in various places, but clumped together to make what's called the Green Bay slash Appleton media market. There's four television stations that when I worked there were highly competitive And I think that the environment was ripe for a big story like this to be covered well and ethically and competitively by the press pool as a whole. And the characters involved in this case were all surprisingly media friendly. Well, media friendly has like a double edged sword meaning, I think, in this story, because you have And I'm just going to tell you, I obviously work in journalism, too, and we cover a lot of cases here in the state as writers. And what New Hampshire media friendly means when you have prosecutors is it means they give a briefing, but you always know, for instance, what they're not going to tell you. Like, it's very formulaic. In this case, what the prosecution was doing with its interactions with the media was... They were trying their case, it seems, in their press briefings. And, and the defense. Yeah. It and, appeared. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, it did appear that way. And it just seemed like the rules of play are very different there. And the motivations seem to be the sort of, you know, the public opinion thing. But also there was like some jockeying, like some, I don't know, like the, the, the whole atmosphere around the interactions with the press were strange. Were they strange at the time? I don't think that they were strange at the time. But, well, it's hard for me to opine on that. But let me sort of deconstruct because you had two ideas rolled into one question. She often does. Let me try to keep them <laughs> she straight. She was small. Uh, you're in, first of all, you are intuitive in recognizing that the rules of engagement are different in Wisconsin because the professional conduct rules for attorneys are different in Wisconsin than they are in New Hampshire. Right, right. So the rules here are more limiting on what an attorney can and cannot say to the press. In Wisconsin, without getting into all of the specifics, I encourage your listeners to actually pull out the rules and read them because it is an an extremely important part of how this happened, is how the letter of the professional conduct rules were written. And you're correct. Wisconsin had a much more open standard. It still has its limits, but it was a much more open standard. The second part of your question is that 
it's difficult at times to keep track of time in Making a Murderer, the film. Keep in mind that as this was playing out, Stephen Avery's attorneys never truly gave a press briefing until the trial started. They would communicate with the press off the record and they would say, "Okay, this is what's on the record as far as my court motion this week or this month or whatnot. But they didn't actually go give a news conference until the trial had started. The jury had been assembled and I I think sequestered is the wrong word because they were allowed to go home at night. But the jury was indeed admonished for watching the press coverage. And at that point, Stephen Avery's attorney started speaking a little more openly. The other side of it is that Wisconsin has a presumed access to courtrooms by the press for all television coverage, including live coverage of pretty much everything. Hmm. It's wide open. So we could basically cover almost everything we wanted and we could broadcast it live because we had a legal presumption of access. The only limits on that in Wisconsin were simple things like not showing the jury and if the judge so requested to not actually show the face of you know, perhaps a, a victim. What was the sort of typical day in the press pool like? Was it Groundhog Day? Uh you know, you, with their camaraderie, like a lot of camaraderie. Well, it, that you know, usually, like you said, if it's a super competitive market, you're probably, if you were in the field, everybody's jockeying for a different piece of information and scooping. But when you're there, it seems like predominantly you're all working from the the same you know set of uh, sound bites and the same information. You know, so th- that pressure is off, and there's more of a time if there's downtime to. To, to maybe chat or or whatever, but but what was what was the mood like? And was it summer camp? It wasn't summer camp. I, I think summer camp was probably more enjoyable. <laughs> but it depended on the day and it depended on the environment. Some days we were not in the courthouse. Keep in mind this started a few days after Halloween in 2005, and it wrapped up in the spring. I'm if I'm remembering it properly in 2007. So it's about a year and a half. Some days we were outside the search of the Avery Selvage Yard in early November 2005, and it was cold at night, and there were some storms that came in, and I remember there was disruption of our ability to transmit live because we can't have a mast, a metal mast of a live truck sticking 20, 30, 40 feet up in the air in a thunderstorm. Yeah, but your, your producers back don't understand why that is, right? <laughs> uh, they, the inside they, cats don't understand what the outside cats are doing. Well, I made them very well <laughs> sure what was happening. We're uh, surrounded by a field of metal. And we what's should the not problem? stick a giant thing of metal up in the air. Why can't you go live at six? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, exactly. So, there were these logistics nightmares to deal with, and we were all out in the middle of it, and we were all jockeying in our own way to tell the best story. And I was chasing leads in two rivers at one point when the rest of the press corps was still hanging around the Avery Salvage Yard. But we also threw a lot of people at this story from the beginning because my news director's philosophy was to, in his words, win the lead. We had to have more people on the lead story than anyone else. So many of the stations would send one or maybe two people down there where we threw almost the entire newsroom at this story from the very beginning. Because, again, going back to the logic of looking at the map, 
the Stephen Avery uh, family property, the Avery Salvage Yard, is, I, I believe it's in Michicot, which is right outside Two Rivers. You have a courthouse in Manitowoc. Then Teresa Halbuck was missing from Hilbert over in Calumet County, and they have a courthouse in Chilton. So her family lives in one town. The Averys live in another. They're in different counties. There are two courthouses in even different towns. And then the Avery family had a camp that was a solid hour and a half plus, if I'm remembering my distances properly, to the north-northwest of Green Bay. And as the search was occurring, they went to the camp because they were not allowed access to the property. So we had a crew up there as well, oftentimes around the clock, just getting reaction from them until the point at which Stephen Avery was arrested. And then after that point, he was calling into our newscast and doing live telephone interviews from his jail cell on the 6 p.m. news. Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. And Strang and Buting were okay with him doing that? This was before he retained oh. Strang okay. and Buting. So okay. at this point, we're still maybe Teresa Halbeck disappears Halloween. We're November 1st, 2nd, 3rd. I think he was arrested around the 3rd or 4th, although, again, 10 years later, my memory of this is is still not completely up to date. We're just so happy at your beautiful pronunciations of Calumet and like clearing up the way that these things are pronounced for us because we've been mispronouncing them, I think, the entire time. We've I think been a lot of people have. <laughs> and you call yourselves journalists. <laughs> uh, it, ahead, it's, it's like I'm in a, a primary debate as a candidate. <laughs> I, I want to respond to that before I go into my next one. Um, what it was like to be in the press pool. So we were dealing with the logistics. We were on different scenes depending on what was happening, different days. And then when things would quiet down in the Avery case, we would be covering other cases. And then things Things would. The arrest of Brendan Dassey was a, a totally unforeseen explosion, and that's when the Ken Kratz, the prosecutorial press conference in Chilton, that one was the one that changed everything because that was the one where he got up and basically spilled Dassey's entire purported confession onto the airwaves. We had no sense whatsoever that was coming. And he laid out an entire theory of the crime in a press conference. The drama of if you have little kids in the room, they you know they shouldn't be watching this. What did and you think told of that? The whole story. Yeah. What, what did you think of that when when you when you watched that? Well, I was sitting ten feet away from Ken Kratz when he did it. You know, the Avery case had largely quieted down. Avery had been arrested. His civil suit was settled. He hired Strang and Buting. And it just results in a flood of memories coming back. Um, we had largely presumed that the Avery case was settling down. I think a few motions may have been filed, like minor preliminary hearings and things like that. Obviously, Avery had been arraigned and things really quieted down. And then all of a sudden... News came into the newsroom that there was another arrest in the Teresa Halbeck murder. I remember racing down there to go to the press conference, and we were all sort of calling one another, saying, well, who is it? Because we more or less had known the whole family on the Avery side at that point or had some interaction with them. I don't want to say we knew them. We had interaction. You were familiar with them. Yeah, we knew who they were. The characters were, yeah. And all of a sudden, we were startled almost perplexed we were you know, who else was involved with this because we always wondered if he had acted alone uh, assuming that he did it but this the narrative from the prosecution was okay well Stephen Avery's responsible for this and well how is Stephen Avery alone responsible assuming he is responsible when the entire family lives in very close quarters on this salvage yard you know, they have a row of trailers lined up and they're all 
very, very close to one another. So then this thing happens, and I'm trying to remember how it went this morning, but I may have, and if I wasn't, I'm, I, I will admit that I may be wrong in this. I thought that I was the one who called the documentary filmmakers and said, something's going on, are you coming? Because they were not in the, the media loop of receiving They wouldn't have gotten the media advisory. Yeah. No, I, and yeah. I don't believe they would have. And I think that I may have been one of the ones that either shot them an email or called them up. If I'm, And I remember they got there a little while after we did. But most of the cutaways of the press corps in the film were the result of them going to that press conference. Keep in mind, when Avery had been arrested, there were a series of other press conferences that were much... Those were before the filmmakers even came onto the property or onto the case. Right. Um, they came onto it after the New York Times repeated the reporting that the local press corps had already done that the exonerated the guy had been arrested. That was yes. like the story, right? Yeah. So they weren't there for the very beginning days of this. Um, I don't believe they were on the scene until after Avery had been arrested. And so they did not have the one-on-one interaction with him that the rest of us had had. Quick question. So a lot of the B-roll that we see in the documentary of the search for Teresa, like in the fields, is that news station raw footage? Yes. So the documentarians obviously had a decent relationship with the media because they were able to obtain that footage. Uh, They had an arm's length relationship with us. And at times they were... Uh, they were amicable to discussing logistics with us because when we were all there to cover the trial, they had the same right of access that we did to the pool footage from the courtroom. And they were the ones that actually ran the switching machine that switched the cameras in the courtroom for the coverage. I mean, all of those logistics involved the filmmakers, but they really came onto the scene later on in the process. Uh, they weren't there for the very beginning. They were there for Dassey's arrest, and they uh, many of the pictures of the the static images of the salvage yard were things that they had caught. Uh, but it was a bit different with them sort of running around and and sort of covering the press's tactics in covering the case. Because so, you were part of the story, you knew that, that, that they were telling. Or did you know that at the time, or did you figure that out later? Oh, I, well, when they were pointing a camera at me, I knew I was <laughs> going to be in their film. And so, you know, it, but part of it is that it also shows a little bit of the way that my approach with these press conferences was everybody's going to get the same information. The competitiveness was in how we processed it after we received it. And I know some reporters had the tactic of just asking every question in the barrel of questions and then spilling it all on the air. And part of the reason in Making a Murderer that you do not see me asking as many really pointed questions in the press conferences was because I didn't want to let my competitors know where I was going to go with the story. Right. Because in this case, there were there were always several stories. One was the story of the facts that were given. And then the second story was the ethics of the investigation. And how I was going to approach the second story, I didn't want to sit there and hammer at a public official in front of my competitors because then everybody would have the same exact story. So I would just take the information, go back, assemble it, assimilate it. Then I would reach back out to the officials and say, you know, I think I need to do a second story on this. And we're going to go on TV and question, you know, for instance, the two that come to my mind are the stories that I did from very, very early on questioning the ethics of Manitowoc County's involvement in the case. 
when we had been assured very clearly in one of the early November 2005 press conferences that Manitowoc County's role would be limited. Well, the minute I found Manitowoc County's names on search warrant returns to the court, I went on the air and said, we were told one thing and the opposite happened. Right. And people were not happy with me. I got nasty calls in the newsroom about that. And I just said, well, the facts are the facts. Right. And if you in the law enforcement community want to backpedal now, that's your job. My job was to report the story. But we really, really stuck our necks out on that one. But we did it because we knew that we had the facts. And so the same thing happened with the Ken Kratz press conference in Chilton after Dassey's arrest, where I went on the air within a day or two and questioned his professional ethics. When I was watching that press conference go down, you know, we started talking about that a little while ago. You know, we set up, we go live as we had done during the search for Teresa. You know, we had been running a crawl or something. You know, there's been a second arrest in this case and there's a news conference scheduled. We'll bring by then everyone was covering everything live. And Kratz sits down and just goes through the whole narrative and now most of America has heard it and I'm just sitting there watching it. I mean, I remember just walking away from it in shock. It was a shock. And I remember going out to the news truck afterwards and just sitting there in a sense of shock for nearly an hour. I didn't write anything. I didn't even log the tape. Shock over what in particular? Um, What he had laid out or the the way he had laid it out or... The fact that he had laid it out. Everything. One of the questions I remember going through my mind was, why did I just subject myself to this? Mm -hmm. The second question was, is it true? And the third question was, what evidence do we have of it? And then the fourth question was, was that ethical? It's very interesting to hear you say this because, and actually, I got to be honest, I'm like really relieved (laughs) um, because I think that everybody who watches this has a point of view, right? Kevin and I, one of our other fellow podcasters, is a former defense investigator. Also, she's a journalist. We have, like, a lot of background in this. And we certainly all watched that part of the documentary and also felt kind of traumatized, kind of shocked, kind of like, W. Can you believe that happened? Can you believe that happened? And there have been, there's been criticism that the documentary was put together to make it look like unethical things happened, to make it look like questionable tactics were in play. And to hear that in the moment, you immediately knew it and you felt it in your bones. You know, you're sitting in the news truck and you couldn't log your tape, which, by the way, for our listeners, is just like a very rote process that you do when you collect tape in the field. You like write down what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you you can, can't afford to sit for an hour when you have a deadline like that. Right. And so, I mean, that speaks to your state of mind. It does. And perhaps I was unique in having that state of mind. I think that a few others just some of my competitors may have been able to trudge on a little more than I did. But well, you have feelings, apparently. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and as a journalist, I had to make sure that I minimize that. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if this is the way that this went down, I now feel horrible for the Hallbook family because I, I always empathized with them incredibly. And, and you know, One thing, and this is an aside, but making a murderer has resulted in a Hollywood-like reaction to incredibly traumatic events that real people went through. Right. And people are sitting at home 
spinning theories about what may or may not have happened, and in some cases saying incredibly rude things. Horrible things, like about Teresa's brother, for instance, which is like insane. And you know, He was a very young man who was not long out of college at the time, and he was a spokesperson for his murdered sister's family, which was an incredible... I mean, we all know that there's usually a family member that has to step up in those situations. It's better for the family if somebody, for example, gives photos of a victim to the press because then it's not like the driver's license photo that's mm-hmm. being shown on TV all the time. And But that is a very, very difficult role to play. And, you know, he did play that role. And I actually really, really cringe when I see the, the same kind of, of criticism leveled against him and other people who are members of that family. I mean, what evidence is there that there was anything other than a grieving family here. I mean, we met with the family the night that she was reported missing. They opened their home up to my colleague, Diana Alviar, and she met with all of them. And many of the pictures of the family flipping through albums and whatnot are the result of that initial interview that night. And Teresa was a photographer, and they understood that she believed in the dissemination of pictures and things that were media savvy. And so they disseminated her photo because they believed that it would lead to finding her. Teresa was a photographer. They knew the power of the picture. Mm -hmm. And they knew that to find their missing loved one, they needed to get it out there very quickly, immediately, and in a saturated way. And even at the end of the Dassey trial, Mike and I had a conversation and I said, you know, Mike, we've just really went through a lot together. What's next? And we we had a gentlemanly discussion. And I said, I got to ask you, did we ever go too far? Because oftentimes the press is criticized for somehow preying on victims. Mm -hmm. And he said, absolutely not. He said, if anything... When we needed to find my sister, you folks stepped up to the plate faster than anyone else other than the police. So so every day in court, you're listening to five, six hours of testimony. And every day you need to take that and boil it down to a, a minute and a half or so. So you understand the challenge of doing that in a way that remains true to what happened that day. So the documentarians looked at 200 hours of testimony and had to do the same thing. Did the trial that you sat through, did you recognize that? Was that the same trial? Tough question to answer because I'm the last person in America who hasn't seen the entire film. You're, you're kidding. There's no more cutaway shots of me. I don't need to watch this. I'm working as a professor. The semester just started. I, you're busy. I am, doing, I am not getting paid to discuss making a murderer, nor do I think ethically that I want to. Are your students uh, hounding you with questions about it? Not hounding, but they're certainly curious. Do you tell and, them to get over it and just do your homework already? Uh, <laughs> I don't tell them to get over it because I don't like to discourage a curious student, but I say this isn't the right time or place to discuss it, I need to make sure you're meeting the course objectives. If you want to talk about it later, then let's do an event or something. And, <laughs> Listen know. to a podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, but, but as far as, okay, this was, the, they laid out, this is what happened at trial. You were there for, for what you saw. W- were they accurate? Hard to say without seeing it. I mean, I will say that had I put it together, I probably would have put it together differently based on what I know of their aim. The caveat is that I certainly do not envy the task that they undertook. It was a difficult task. They had to leave some things out and they had to put some things in. 
But they have stated that their aim was to examine the justice system. Yet the public reaction to the piece has been largely sympathy for Stephen Avery. I think that the difference in public reaction is from their stated intent is the result of the way that they edited their footage. And you probably both understand this very, very clearly. Um, and, you know, someone listening might say, aha, I now have a journalist saying that it's possible for the press to twist the public perception of an event. Well, it's possible. The key is to not do it. If it truly was an examination of the justice system, then where were the analysts who were there questioning the justice system? The experts? You mean like experts? Um, right. Where were the full screens of text discussing the way the law actually was written and how it operated? Well, they didn't want to have a narrator. They didn't want to do experts. They just wanted to use natural sound for the whole thing. Well, that tactic led to certain perceptions by the audience, and it led to a lot of stereotyping and typecasting of the characters. Yeah, we, we, yeah we noticed that and commented that that decision did change sort of the narrative, of, uh, or, or at least the way the audience would perceive what was happening. And I think that perhaps their thought was, well, if I use natural sound, then the I'm letting people use their own words and it's more accurate. But they well, still get to choose the natural sound they're using, right? Exactly. And so, for instance, um, when I did the story questioning whether Ken Kratz's press conference was ethical, I believe I, and I'd have to go back into my station's archives and pull this, but I thought that part of my tactic in that story was to actually quote the rules of professional conduct. You put them up on a screen and say, this is the standard, and then this is the exception to the standard that Ken Kratz believes justifies his conduct, and then these are the people who disagree with his interpretation. And then the audience is left with a more round view of, oh, gee, let's see, rule 3.6a says this, and the current version of the exception is Wisconsin Rule 3.6c2, I believe, which is analogous to New Hampshire's 3.6b2. Wow. B2, yeah. you sure? That? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> You're okay. encyclopedic. <laughs> well, I've had to go back and look at this several times, and some of my research in this is, again, if our aim is to examine the justice system, then the way to do it is to look at what the law students would call the black letter of the law as printed on the white page in the book and say, does that wording lead to a conclusion that now after examining these facts is something that we as a society are unwilling to stomach. And I think that, again, with due respect to the filmmakers, they have opened a discussion, but did it frame the discussion in a way that forces the audience to examine the system and its laws, or did it lead the audience to feel emotional hatred and sympathy for the actors in the story? So you live in New Hampshire now, which, mm -hmm. by the way, nobody was more gobsmacked than I to find that out, especially after we talked about you in particular on this podcast. Always very complimentary, by the way. <laughs> right? Can I say right? Yes. I mean, is Silver Fox a complimentary? We didn't coin the term. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, so you then, this documentary comes out, people start watching it. It hit very quickly and exploded very quickly. So uh, you live and work in the area. Have you been recognized at Market Basket? Uh, not so much at Market Basket, but almost everywhere else. <laughs> and it's weird because there's a, there are places I've 
visited almost every week in my rounds around Concord and people you know, clerks and whatnot obviously know me because I walk in every week to buy something or order food or whatever. And then all of a sudden it was the patrons who were coming up to me at the soda fountain or whatnot and saying, are you the guy that's in that? I was in Connecticut about three or four weeks ago shopping and someone walked up to me and they, I have no clue if you're the guy, but you look like the guy <laughs> in that film. And I'm just like, well, actually, I mean, what are you doing in Connecticut? Shopping? What are you doing in Connecticut? <laughs> right. Shopping? Uh, you know, we don't sit at home all the time. So it's it's been... In many ways, since I've been out of media work for some time, it's been interesting to watch that sort of come back into my life. And in some ways, it's flattering. Some of the commentary about me has been more amusing than flattering or more flattering than amusing. Wait, which but, one does Silver Fox lay on, flattering or amusing? Which side? Both. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, anyone who knew me from high school could attest that my hair was getting a little bit gray back then. Before it was gray, it was jet black. So It's distinguished, uh, as you know. It's very distinguished. You know, that's what some people say. I've had other people say that it just makes me look like their grandfather. And, okay, well, you know. Uh, those I, those I people are wrong. Still are men, clearly. So all these people come up to you, and inevitably, most of them must ask, well, do you think Stephen Avery did it? Is, do you not get that question? I get the question from journalists way more than I get it from the public. Huh. I think it, the public is just more surprised that they ran into me. I had one guy somewhere who said— well, It sounds like you're dodging the essence of my question. He's a journalist. Yes. He's as, not going to answer as, that question. Well, I'm a journalist, so I'm going to ask the question. What do you think about Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence? I've told everyone the same answer. I never formed an opinion. I think it's unethical for a working journalist to form an opinion about a trial that the journalist is charged with covering for two reasons. First Slow of all, clap for Aaron. Yes, yeah. very good. Very good. First of all, the the role of the journalist is to accurately present information to the public so that the public could decide. And I think a true journalist does his or her job so that the public can understand. And if it's a scene that was captured beautifully in the the film the the insider about the tobacco scandal at 60 minutes where when the report finally aired it was caught with all this dramatic music of just everyday americans watching this tobacco insider admit that the industry was less than scrupulous and i think that the true journalist does his or her job for that moment of public epiphany where the public can turn around and say, yes, now I understand. That's why I did my job. I remember thinking to myself, even from the early days, well, there's going to be a trial and there's going to be one of three outcomes. It's either going to be a hung jury, a conviction or an acquittal. Whatever that decision is, I want my viewers to be comfortable knowing how that decision came to be. What did the jury use to arrive at that decision? And so if there was an acquittal, my audience would say, well, there were a lot of serious questions about the ethics of the law enforcement officers. If there was a conviction, my audience would say, well, it was a lot of circumstantial evidence, but it added up to equate to guilt. And I wanted to equip my audience with the ability to say, I understand. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking to us. This has been an unbelievably fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You're great. That was Aaron Keller, of 
course, the Silver Fox journalist from Making a Murder, who was part of that Greek chorus of journalists that we all saw when we were watching that miniseries. Now, Toby, the last thing we heard Aaron say in his interview was that he had no opinion on Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence. Now, do you think that could possibly happen to you, that you could have that same experience that Aaron did and not form an opinion about Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence? That seems like a little bit of a stretch. I mean, I can definitely see feeling the need, as, as I think he should, to not let any feelings in that affect his, his actual reporting. But it seems hard that you would sit through a trial especially one like that, and just come away being like, a, I don't know, I, I can't think about it because I'm a journalist. One of the things that we didn't hear in the interview that we just played, because by the way, we had a much longer conversation and it was edited way down. And if I have the time, I promise I will post the full conversation on our website. Only though, if I think our listeners want to hear it. So if you want to hear it, let me know. Maybe I'll get motivated to edit the whole thing. One of the things that he did tell us was that he has maintained a friendship and a correspondence with Dean Strang and Jerry Buting. When he was in law school, Aaron Keller, he would write to them frequently and they would give him advice about, you know, certain aspects of the law. And he made it sound like maybe he would have been open to having the same thing with Ken Kratz, you know, but I'm not sure that you could be friends with Strang and Buting and maintain that complete, like, neutralness about Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence. Because Strang and Buting are, they make no bones about the fact that they think Avery is innocent. Right, Kevin? Well, I actually, I think the quote with uh, on CBS this morning when they interviewed Strang was, he's not convinced of his guilt, which is different. And I think that's kind of the way that I feel. I'm going to say, like, I, you know, the question about can you not form an opinion I think it's hard not to form an opinion. That doesn't mean that informs your reporting because we all have opinions about things that we cover, if it's politics, if it's you know the story of the cat in the tree or a trial. But I, I can say that you know I would understand uh, an answer like Strang's where he says, you know, I'm not convinced either way. I'm having trouble finding this or what. Or, or, or to be flat out, yeah, I believe he's guilty. Yeah, I believe he's innocent. I find it hard to believe you don't have any opinion. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, I, I didn't buy that. I, I mean, I think that it's um, admirable as a journalist to say that you don't have an opinion, but we all have opinions. And, you know, it's just like Kevin said, you don't let that come into your reporting. You report both sides of the debate and you let the reader or the viewer or the listener make up their own mind. You know, I, it's making me also think about, you know, working on defense cases. And there are certainly cases where you go into a case and you think this person is guilty. But at the same time, that can't change your representation of them. You still have a job to do and you still have to do that job and kind of put those sort of feelings aside. we got to take him at his word that he doesn't have an opinion. And so you know it, what? It would be impossible for me to not. To be fair, meeting him and talking to him for that long... I believed him. You know, it's funny because he's a very earnest guy. Would you agree with mm -hmm. me? Yeah. He's not putting it on. He really seems very, very earnest. He has amazing elocution. And amazing hair. Still. Okay, let's pause for a second <laughs> to talk about that, okay? The silver fox still has it, Laura. So there's, uh. there's a thing about seeing TV reporters on TV, and because, you know, Kevin used to mm -hmm. be a reporter, and, you know, there is a— And I look like shit now. <laughs> but there is a sort of slickness to the way people look on TV, and very often when you see them in person, you realize, like, a lot of that is, like, the TV hair and the TV makeup. Aaron Keller in person— 
the hair was better than it was on TV. Am I right or am I wrong? It, his hair was spun from the mane of a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Held together with gel from fairy dust and yep. combed with Elvis's yeah. it brush. Was, yeah. It was... Did you touch it? I, you know, I wanted... I, I'm not going to lie. I wanted to touch it. He, The way that he sounds in that interview was actually the way he was. He was that earnest and he was that serious... And I didn't feel like I totally would ask, you know, Brian Williams if I could touch his hair, but I didn't feel like I could do that with Aaron Keller. So I mean, maybe that's telling. It's admirable restraint. It was real and it was spectacular. spectacular. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. In any case, I think, Laura, you make an excellent point about politics. You know, Gawker came out today and I saw this on Twitter and I looked, I read the article on Gawker and then I tweeted about it and I had a little back and forth with another news person on another public radio station about it. Gawker now has a policy that Reporters are allowed to contribute to political campaigns if they disclose it in their reporting. Now, that is something that I vehemently disagree with. I think that if your reporting touches politics or policy, and most reporting at some point in its career does, you're going to be on record as having donated to a campaign. And that's the same as giving your opinion. Am I wrong about that, Kevin? Well, I agree with you that I don't think reporters should be contributing their own money to campaigns. You know, even if they, it just becomes too clunky to to disclose that every time. Look, I think it would be okay if they gave money and then, like every other conflict thing, they don't ever cover that candidate or that issue. I mean, I think that's fine. Andrea uh, Mitchell, who's on NBC, Andrea Mitchell, Andrea yeah. Mitchell, yeah, who's married to Alan Greenspan, right? I mean, she won't ever do a piece for NBC about the Fed, right? Which is what you would expect. She was going to do the other stuff. I think it's a little weird that Andrea Mitchell is married to Alan Graham. I'm not going to lie. I think that's a little bit weird. He's not a silver fox? No, I just, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I, I'm not as purist as Aaron <laughs> Didn't Keller. did Barbara Walters Wait. date him too? Yes. I think I mean, this thing about not. people about bias is that people don't understand, they don't use the term right, is that when you have a bias, it's disclosing the conflict or the bias is not biased. That's transparency. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to make the decision. Nobody w listens to undisclosed thinking that it is unbiased, not unbiased. Bias is when you have that conflict, that feeling, and you don't disclose okay. it. If you go on the air and you say you are fair and balanced and you are not, mm -hmm. that is a bias. Right. All right. But to come out and say, you know, Sarah is completely transparent about her relationship as it was with Adnan, and transparent about the distance that she actually has between Bo Bergdahl and her own reporting. So when people like talk about bias, they really don't know what they're talking about. Sarah Koenig also said that she thought the whole thing where reporters weren't supposed to have opinions was bullshit. She said that in an right. interview she did with Terry Gross. What do you think about this, Laura? You've been a reporter for a long time. You know, the, yeah. the, the difference between an opinion and bias it's a line that these conversations are helping us draw or not helping us draw. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's funny because I actually had a conversation with a friend this week about this very issue, Rebecca. Um, it's a friend that used to be a journalist and now is in a completely different career and was calling me because she was just feeling she was feeling the burn. And for the first time in her life, she was going to make a political contribution. But because as a reporter, this is something that was so off limits, it was really uncomfortable. 
And I'm like, you're not a reporter anymore. It's okay now. But it's just, it's so ingrained in you that you have to remove yourself from that. So I, I think, you know, like Kevin said, I mean, if you disclose that you have a bias and you don't report on things, like my husband is the fire chief. And so I did not report on things related to the fire department after it became clear that we were an item. So I think you just have to put that out there and put it up front and not give people any reason to sort of discount what you're writing about or what you're reporting on. That was the problem in some people's mind with making a murderer, right? Is that, you know, they had a slant that wasn't really disclosed. You know, it was kind of put forth as an objective treatment of what happened. And they even kind of talked as if that it was an objective picture of what happened. And everybody else who was interviewed or declined to be interviewed or who viewed it thought that they were definitely in the Avery camp. So it, it, it is both in sort of political reporting. I worked at a political magazine back in the 90s, and that was always on people's mind. What's interesting about political reporting that's different, and of course this has been like what I've been living for the last six months, is that you really start to view the process and the people in politics very clinically, like this very like um, you have this thing where like it's it's like it's happening and you're talking about the process and the strategy so much that when you finally go to the voting booth, it's like, ah, I'm a person again. But I do have an opinion and I did vote for somebody in this election. I do when we do our crime books. I know what I think I know about the people we're reporting on in our crime books. And there have been times where I have been sure of something, but I'm like, we can't write it. We can't. And we can't give any hint that that's what we think when we write it because that would be wrong. But it doesn't mean I don't think it. And so either Aaron Keller is a different kind of person than I am and that we all are. Your hair is better than his. My, no, his it, hair no, is... No, I mean, he's, it's good his for His hair a guy. is better than everybody's. Your hair is Sasha awesome. does have very good hair. Not I have as, noticed that. Not as good Internet as Aaron. Internet, weigh in. Not Tweet as good. about Rebecca. Hashtag Rebecca's <laughs> hair. Hashtag Aaron wins is what I'm going to say about that. You know, just thinking about, you know, not his hair, but what he was saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, be all snotty about it. <laughs> I'm not as fixated on if the hair. If you had seen it, you would not be saying that. That's all I got to say. That's true. It's, it's probably it's probably when it's live, it's different. I guess thinking about it while, while you guys were talking, I, I can kind of see, and, and maybe this is what the deal was, like, like you were saying about politics, that it, that it becomes – it's like logistics and process and things like that. And if you watch a trial in that way, maybe you're able to kind of take away like the guilt or innocence aspect and think about it more as how the defense is, is going about their work, how the prosecution is going about their work without necessarily trying to pass judgment on the truth of the case. What I thought was really interesting was that there was a handful of journalists in that media pool who went on to go to law school. Three of them. He's not the only one. He's one of yeah. three that went on to go to law school. That's a phenomenon I have seen here in New Hampshire. And Justin Brown, Adnan's appellate attorney, also is a former journalist. Hmm. Well, I guess we all, you know, I'm practically a lawyer. I'm like the yeah. grinder. You took, <laughs> <laughs> you took two. And by the way, the word you were thinking of was not appellant. It was petitioner. You know oh, how I know that? Because I, internet told you? Because I'm practically a lawyer. You're practically a lawyer. <laughs> I think the appellate defender, isn't that, that's the office that the appeals go through for the defense in the state. Okay. Well, that, speaking yes. of the long view of trials, and we'll keep this very brief because it has just started. I think there's going to be plenty of material to talk about in coming weeks. 
There has been, in the last couple of weeks, a brand new show that America is looking at and talking about and tweeting us about and writing us emails about, and that is The People vs. O.J. Simpson. It is being rolled out by FX as the first season of, I think, what is going to be a series called American Crime Story, and then The People vs. O.J. Simpson is the first season of this series. Well, it's not so, the ABC show of like a American name. Crime is the ABC yeah, okay. show. This is called American Crime Story, but the name of the show that everybody is calling it is The People vs. O.J. Mm-hmm. Simpson. The name of Jeffrey Tubin's book. Jeffrey Tubin, by the way, who I know like a little bit, which is exciting for me. But anyway, we were just talking about the O.J. Simpson case a few weeks ago. We were talking about the EDTA evidence and the Stephen Avery case, and we were talking about the craziness that was the O.J. Simpson trial. I had no idea at the time that this series was coming out. So let's talk about this. Is it possible to tell a good story about a story that we already know? What do you think, Toby? Yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> with the OJ. I mean, the OJ, and I, I have no idea what this series is, is going to be focusing on, but I think there were such complicated things about race going on in that trial and at the time in the 90s, that in itself, so many societal things were brought out by that case that if you bring that into the mix, you know, the actual trial is more sort of the focus for these other things. I I, I think you could probably do like six or seven series and have them be good. Well, one of the things that really sticks out about this one is the cast, right? It's like it's a TV movie with A-list people in it. And there's all of this pop culture stuff interwoven. Of course, the Kardashians are loosely associated with the story. There's like a surrealness about it that is making it very different from any other sort of TV produced movie I've seen about a real case. Kevin, what are your thoughts about that aspect of the show? You know, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of A-listers, but there's a whole lot of, hey, I know that guy. Hey, I know that There's certainly girl. a lot yeah. of former A-listers and Travolta. close to A-listers. Travolta. Travolta. And you're like, oh, that's the guy from- Oscar winner, right. Cuba Gooding okay. yeah. Jr. is in the show. Yeah, it's, it's not a typical lifetime Connie movie Britton's of the week. in the show. Cheryl Ladd. Okay. David Schwimmer. I, okay, I stand corrected. <laughs> Look, your question was, is it possible to tell a good story about a story we already know well? And I say no. It's not possible to tell a good story about a story we already know well unless you tell something that we don't know about that story. Or in this case, enough time has passed that we don't remember a lot of the story. Or people don't know it at all. Or, right. There's some people who don't know it all. They know it by reputation. Right. Um, you know, people might know, oh, I've heard of the Boston Strangler or I've heard of Titanic, right? So I think it's sort of like now... I think I think I turned to you on the couch and said this. I can't believe no one's done this yet. But I just think enough time has passed. There's been enough distance. And I think that we're at a point now where this is on FX, right? This isn't on NBC, CBS, right? FX and AMC, there's a, a lot of the basic cable channels are doing such great stuff with drama. I think the best show on television is on a basic cable channel, and that's The Americans. Or Better Call Saul, that's also, that's AMC. You know, these are like some really great, I think like now is the time to do it. There's like a golden age of drama on basic cable. So this is the right time and the right place to tell the story. But here's my question, and this is my question for you, Laura, because I know that you are now becoming a person who consumes content, finally, through your little iPad screen. This show is weird. It's got like a weird, like John Travolta's performance is like real weird. It like freaks me out, the eyebrows. 
Now, Peter Sagal tweeted the other day, uh, Peter Sagal from NPR's What We Don't Tell Me, that TV needed to get good before you could tell this story. And I kind of agreed. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it is fun. I'm into it. But it's also kind of weird. Like, what are your impressions of this show? Yeah, I mean, I will say to me, there's there's the cheese factor here. It's a little cheesy still for me. It's not like watching a show that's produced for like HBO or some other network. There is definitely that where I'm like, this is a little bit too much. I mean, I'm, I'm watching it. I'm not loving it. But what I'm liking, and, you know, I followed this kind of superficially, obviously, you know, getting mainstream news in Vermont when I was growing up, it was like hit or miss. So I don't know a lot of these details. So I had no idea of the Kardashian angle with OJ. And that that's been kind of fun. I also kind of like when they're having the great Bronco scene and the guy pulls over at the call station on the highway. Yep. I, I like these sort of like, oh, yeah, no, this was a while ago that this took place. But to me, there's just something about it. It feels a little too much, like with the smoking of the cigarettes. It's almost a little bit overdone to me. I think that's the weird factor to me. It's a little bit overdone. They're trying too hard. One of the things I liked about it is that my memory of it at the time, and I didn't follow it that closely, but you know, you couldn't not know about it, was that it was it was cheesy and the people were weird and it was over the top. You know, it was it was such a strange thing. You know, it's the Kardashians are, are playing a part in this. It's, it's just very, That's it's a very weird strange thing. thing. Me, yeah. But yeah. I 100% agree with you, Toby. And the reason I think they made a point of showing that quick scene with the Kardashian kids is because this was a moment. It was a cheesy, weird story. And that thing with OJ in the car and they were showing his side of it and you heard the Cuba. We heard it on live TV. That's what he said. It was that narcissistic. It was that cheesy. These weird characters. Robert Shapiro is a weird, weird character. Yes. <laughs> and in and, and real life. And, you know, all these lawyers that like hated each other. And by the way, all the lawyers that hate each other, spoiler alert, are going to become the dream team. They're going to actually all team up together and become like... OJ's defense team and it's super weird and then there was like you can't overstate how famous OJ Simpson was and how there had never been a celebrity accused of murder like at this level this publicly before it was insane I think as cheesy as it is and as weird as it is it actually very much reminds me of what it was yeah. to watch this real thing what do you think Kevin well the stuff about you know um, referring back to the Kardashians as kids. I think it's just a little self-indulgent. I mean, I was like, whoa, here's a little known fact. O.J. Simpson almost committed suicide in little Kim Kardashian's bedroom. <laughs> like, that was the only thing. Like, oh, he nearly blew his brains out all over her Joey Lawrence poster. But when Kim Kardashian first became a person that you heard about, when she was like Paris Hilton's stylist right. or whatever, how did you know the name Kardashian? Oh, her father was a... Yes. Yes. There is a tie there. But that they, is why she's famous. they keep having famous. to make cameos like them running around at the funeral. I mean, I thought it was just like, they just want yeah. to keep reminding people that the you Kardashians are on the fringes of the Chris story. Kardashian, that part I didn't like. Chris Kardashian, who is now a is famous, a yes. is a character in this story. Is She is a legitimate, so I don't know. I, I think we should give it a I, latitude. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's just too much weight. I think it's it's like for a, it's a whole wink wink at the audience. I was talking to my sister last night and she said, did you hear... The thing about the O.J. Simpson prank show. Yes. It's on This American Life. It's from last August. And uh, it's about how, like, after all this stuff happened, it's a little bit unclear on how, how much he had to do with getting this thing off the ground. But he was an active participant in it. It was a, it was a show that was 
honest to God, called Juiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it never aired anywhere. No, it was and, pay-per-view. Oh. Yeah, it was really? pay-per-view. And it was going to be like one of those Ashton Kutcher like prank things, except the prank in all of them was that O.J. Simpson was going to be there and, and somehow that was going to make people freak out. Right. And I, I won't go into the whole story because it's, it's definitely worth listening to. It's amazing. Um, but it gives you a lot of insight into a bunch of things, including like what a freaking weird guy O.J. Simpson was. Is. Is. Yeah. You know, Wait, again, do you like have an this, opinion, Kevin? Am I hearing an opinion from it? Oh, kiss my ass, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm sorry, Toby. You know, you're totally right. And that, that is a great episode of This American Life. We'll post to it on our website so our listeners can listen to it. Okay, so now we're going to move on to my favorite part of the show before we wrap up a little something I like to call the crime of the week. After 41 epic days, the occupation of a federal wildlife refuge in Oregon finally over. It was part of an ongoing protest by anti-government activists. The standoff was originally in protest of two ranchers who were to report to jail after arson convictions on federal lands, but the whole thing can trace its roots to the 2014 armed standoff involving rancher Clive and Bundy. This wildlife refuge seizure was organized by Bundy's son. It's a whole connection there. Clive and Bundy had refused to pay grazing fees on federal land, even though he'd lost a legal battle against the government. Now that it's over, all the protesters are in custody. One was killed by police while reaching for his gun. Those two other ranchers reported to prison, and even Clive and Bundy, who hadn't even been at the refuge, announced on Facebook he was on his way. He was finally arrested, too. So here's my question for you. Kevin, if you could barricade yourself away for someplace for a month, where would it be and what would you bring? Go. <laughs> um, I, I'd barricade myself in one of those, uh, the rooms they have like at the uh, like the Best Buy where you can, cl- it's soundproof and so you can go in and listen to the stereos like really loud and I would bring like all the Blu-rays of the Star Wars trilogy and Die Hard and I would barricade myself in there with a, a whole bunch of Twinkies and uh six pack of Bud Light Lime. So you, so you would actually bring snacks? Well, no. I'm, maybe I'll go on the internet and beg people to send me food like them. <laughs> Laura, what about you? Where would you go? How would you barricade yourself and what would you bring? Wow. I mean, the thing is, I just don't know if I would have the patience for this. I mean, I, it, I, I'm a very social person. I would have to bring somebody with me. I would definitely go somewhere warm as, um, you know, we're here in the middle of this cold New England winter. I do favor the island of St. John and the Virgin Islands. Um, You'd barricade so yourself I, in the island of St. John. I would barricade myself on St. John and... Um, um, have some pina coladas, I think. What about you, Toby? I was going to say St. John, so I got to think of something else. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> but then I'd have someone to talk to. I love, I love St. John. We stayed at this place that had uh, was like an eco lodge, and it yeah. also was a place for iguanas that outgrew their homes, which would make it much more fun as a place to barricade yourself. With the iguanas. Well, you could eat so, them, I is suppose. Is that the place, Toby, <sighs> if you stay God. for more than a month? You get to stay for free if you work for four hours a day. Do you know that deal? Uh, where's this? It, on St. John at the, the eco place. If you stay for a month, if you commit to stay for a month and you work for four hours a day, you get free lodging. Wow. That's great. Is this Mafo have, Bay? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we could have Mafo some Bay? remote podcasts, I think. Maybe we can get a, uh, a sponsorship from them. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Well, we got to get it from someone someday, right? Iguana jerky. (laughs) Sent right to your home. 
So I guess the long and short of it is I would probably barricade myself somewhere with that had the NBA league pass. Yeah. <laughs> but you, Rebecca, where would you barricade yourself? Right here in this studio talking to the three of you. Oh, so nice. Yeah. So I guess we should edit on that note with my big fat lie. Yeah. We'll let that one go. <laughs> so, Toby, before I let you go, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Laura Bricker, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A-O-U. Dr. Shivago was big when I was born. <laughs> and what about you, Kevin? How can our listeners find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer, tweet us or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Crime Writers on Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. And if you love this show, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps keep us on the charts so others can find us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in the beautiful studios of New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with our Amazon link. Check out our Buy Our Books page. Check out the event that Kevin and I are having on March 3rd. Or make a PayPal or Stripe donation to support the show. On behalf of all the crime writers, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next week. Do you know that relationship podcast I always want to start? Yeah. I actually did get one question this week about someone asked us a relationship question via email this week, but I didn't respond to it yet because I was wondering how you would answer it. Yeah, okay, you ask me now? Okay. Dear Rebecca, your marriage to Kevin sounds so great and fun on your podcast. Is it really like that in real life? <laughs> well, I like to think that my life is just as fun as it is on <laughs> the podcast. We all know that your real life involves way more laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And me like being like, okay, I'm home late. I'm hungry. When are we going to have dinner? I get cranky if I don't have dinner. <laughs> You've survived the New Hampshire primary, along with the rest of us. Do you have any good primary stories from this time around? I was sitting in one of the cafes here in Concord when Ben Carson walked in. And uh, one of his handlers came over and said, hey, do you want to meet Ben Carson? He's running for president. I said, I don't know if Ben Carson wants to meet me. Well, Carson, apparently, whatever I said, apparently just cut through everything else that's going in the cafe. <laughs> and he's like, well, who said that? And he's like, why would you say that? And I said, well, because I used to be an investigative reporter for a series of NBC stations. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, that doesn't mean you don't want to talk to me. I said, no, it means you don't want to talk to me. So does it feel, Kevin, anticlimactic to have all of this You mean action? like artificial simulation? Oh, <laughs> okay. Seriously. <laughs> I told you it's a real thing. <laughs> Do you need to leave the room? They're not even talking anymore. <laughs> They're bored with you. Toby's legitimately bored with you right now. I'm sorry, Toby. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go get a snack. <laughs> is it, anti it is kind of anti- <laughs> Stop, stop. No. Stop. Oh, God, stop. Turn your microphones off. <laughs> oh,
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.